Look in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Uh, you know, over the years, uh, I'm sure that other preachers here remember when they were in Bible college or seminary and they had friends that they went to school with. And I remember in school, we had some tremendous guys that just excelled academically. They were very popular. They were great guys. Uh, I was uh, not that guy. I was a guy that didn't graduate summa cum laude. It was more like thank the laude, you know. And so... I was just thankful to be able to finish uh, when, when I went to Bible college, but I was thankful for that. But you look at their ministry, you look at their life in Bible college, you think, man, they're going to do awesome things, only to find out a few years later they've bombed out. I tell you, it's a, it's a disheartening thing. I remember one day we were uh, on the property here, and one of the guys that I graduated from stopped in to uh, look at an uh, RV that Brother uh, Daniel had for sale. And as he's pulled in, I said, oh, my goodness, it's great to see you. How is the missionary life? And he says, oh, I'm not in missionary work anymore. He said, it wasn't for me. Well, that was a disappointment. Big guy, just loved, they seemed to love the Lord. Very, uh, just seemed to be very well put together. And then there was another missionary I remember, and, and, uh, and I'm thankful he's a missionary on the field today. Got discouraged in the field, came home. And uh, his pastor helped him get his mind and his heart right with the Lord and got his focus back on what really mattered and got back into ministry and is now back in the country where God's called him serving the Lord. Listen, I'm thankful for those like that. Maybe he had a rough go in the middle but decided, I'm going to finish strong. In the book of Hebrews chapter 12, as the writer of Hebrews transitions into this, there's a warning here that he begins to share with us and he begins to just kind of encourage us uh, to help us to persevere in our Christian walk. And, as, uh, and I think about this, this passage here, and as he does so, you can see that he loves uh, the, the folks he's writing to, and he has a desire that they're ready and they're fit for what lies ahead. And I think any pastor has a desire to prepare for his, his flock for what's coming. You know, whether it's a, a, a coming a major catastrophe or maybe it's something else that you're just having this desire to prepare your people to walk with the Lord and to, and to be with them. Well, the writer of Hebrews had that same desire that no matter what may come uh, in your Christian walk, you can continue. And so as he looks in the future, he sees uh, the high probability of persecution that will come that's heavy on the lives of, the, uh, of those readers. No doubt, uh, remember, uh, there was the Emperor Nero who had both uh, Peter uh, persecuted and killed and, and uh, Paul as well. And we see great persecution in that early church. And so this writer had a desire then to urge them to stand uh, and to persevere and to be faithful no matter what may come. To stand like maybe like Joseph, full of integrity. But he does so here in verses, uh, starting in verse 1, and he uses a word picture uh, to describe this need to stand and to remain faithful. And he uses this picture of a race. Uh, and so it's as if we're entering today into a great stadium of spiritual athletics today. Did y'all come ready for Christian calisthenics tonight? <laughs> all right, stand with me. Now be seated. No, I'm teasing. So the stands all around us, if you can picture this in your mind, are filled with the great athletes of the past. Those who've run their races, those who've competed in their events, and they're now eager to encourage the new contestants, those that are stepping up to the starting line. And so as we look at Hebrews 12, I just want to have you to have that kind of that mind's eye as we look at this passage here together. In Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 4, we read this passage together, and let's read it. 
Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Let's stop there, shall we? Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage. We thank you for the Bible. Uh, what a difference it makes in our life and in um, bringing peace, Lord, being a guide. Lord, your word has been such an inspiration to all of us and probably no doubt many of us in here could share uh, favorite passages or promises, Lord, that we have clung to, Lord, over the years. And Lord, as we come to Hebrews 12 too, this is one for me. And Lord, I thank you for this reminder that you've called us looking unto Jesus. Just to keep our eyes upon you, to be encouraged in this time, uh, not to lose sight of what really matters. And so, God, I pray that your blessings would be on the message, Lord, on, uh, that your work, spirit would work in our lives, and that we might be pliable as clay in the potter's hands. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. If we look at verse 2, um, this is probably uh, three words that mean more to me uh, in my life over the years. Looking unto Jesus. Those three words have meant a lot because no matter what you go through, they can be a reminder. Whether uh, ministry is going good, looking unto Jesus. Whether ministry is going bad, going, looking unto Jesus. Whether I'm full of myself, I better look unto Jesus. Whether I feel like a dog, look unto Jesus. It doesn't matter. I, it, look unto Jesus. What a great message for us. If we could just remember one phrase from this tonight. You may not remember anything else I've said all day, but if you can remember those three words, you'll be at, at well ahead of where you were when you came in today. Look unto Jesus. I found it a support through crisis. It's an, it's an encouragement to praise. When I was a youth minister, we, I just so loved this and was so moved by this that we named our youth group Focus. That and Linda on the sidelines screaming, Focus! That was also a good uh, inspiration there too. But through the years, I've learned that a sustained ministry is a ministry that's focused on Jesus Christ. You, you can't continue in ministry unless he gets the glory. You can't continue in ministry unless you keep your focus on him. You can't continue in the Christian walk unless Christ is preeminent in all things in your life. And so if you're focused on what the other guys are doing across the street or you're dis, you become discouraged, if you're focused on, on what people are, uh, is going on in people's lives on Facebook or Twitter or any other social media platforms, you will lose focus on the Savior. And so I want to encourage you, get your eyes tonight back on what really matters and to see uh, Christ for who he is. And so this was, I think, the mistake the prodigal son made. As he was there in the land with his father, and he was looking at all the different things and the advantages of the world, he lost focus on what was really matter. He felt like he was missing out on the world, not realizing that it was the father that was protecting and providing for him in ways the world only dreams of. All he saw was all the quote-unquote fun that his friends were having in the, in the far-off land, and so he got his eyes off of what mattered and he lusted for things that God wouldn't have him to have. You remind you that Satan is the master deceiver. 
John 8, 44 says, He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. As Christ describes as Satan, he's describing what he does still in our life today. He lies. He doesn't tell the truth. He tries to deceive. He speaks lies and, and tries to get you to go into his path instead of following, uh, instead of following Christ. He'll use lies, murder, lust, envy, jealousy, many other things. And one of the greatest weapons at his disposal is that of distraction. Think about in the garden, if you will. In the garden, he tempted, he deceived Adam and Eve by getting them to take their eyes off of all the wonderful things that God had provided for them. And they focused instead on one thing they couldn't have. You ever thought about this? Think about this. I don't know how many trees, I, I, I don't even know how many trees today that there are that bear fruit. Miranda, do you know how many fruit trees there are? She studies dirt. That's why I was asking. And so I, I'm just sitting here thinking, well, how many fruit trees are there today? How many fruit trees were there then? Maybe there was hundreds. Maybe there was 30. I, I don't know. But all they had their focus on was one tree they couldn't eat of. You ever been thinking about this? And where did they go? The same place all of us would have gone to, I might add. You know you would have. I know I do. And we would have gone right to that tree of knowledge of good and evil and said, what makes this tree so special? I want the one thing I can't have. Listen, Satan was there to tempt Job to curse God and die. He was there to tempt Joseph to lay with Potiphar's wife. He was there to call Samson to rely on his own strength and rather than to trust in God. He was there to tempt the three Hebrew children to bow down to a false idol. He was there to tempt Moses to bypass God's perfect plan of redemption. And he was there to tempt the Son of God to love the things of this world more than loving the obedience to, God, to the Father. Over and over and over again we could say that he's been there along the way, but godly men and women have remained steadfast through it all. Christ was steadfast through it all. And these, these in, in Hebrews 12, as he says, Wherefore, seeing we also are combassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Look at the stands and the arenas filled around you in your mind's eye and see this cloud of witnesses, all of these faithful, godly men and godly women that have run their course, they have finished their race, and they can say that we have done, we have accomplished it, and they look back from, from their uh, perches in the stands and looking on our lives, and they're saying, don't give up in the midst of all that's going on it's worth the race so let's look to Jesus tonight we can look to Jesus and we'll find clarity for what really matters we'll see that clear that Christ offers clarity through these past generations and how he sustained them he'll sustain us today We'll see that even today that God provides for us in tomorrow. We don't have any worries about tomorrow. Man, we, we may wonder what's going to happen on the morrow. I can tell you right now, it doesn't matter because God's already there. I can trust Him. So let's look at how He sustained past generations. Now, in, if we look at the context of Hebrews 12, we see that God strategically placed it in a very incredible place. One, the word wherefore links it directly to what happens in Hebrews 11. Now, we put the chapter breaks in later uh, just so that we could find place in the verse breaks, but it, originally this would have been written all in paragraph form. You would have, like a letter, you would have just read it from one paragraph to the next paragraph. But we put those divisions and breaks in there to make things easier to find. But in Hebrews chapter 11, we know this chapter as the great hall of faith, if, is what we sometimes call it. In, in my Bible, I took time and I underlined every place where it says faith in the book in, in Hebrews 11. I just used a, a red pen and I just highlighted. I wanted to see how many times it spoke of it. I wanted it to stick out. 
as I read through my Bible. And then there's great uh, words of wisdom. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We look at Hebrews 11 and there's no doubt we know that this is the hall of faith. And God lists some great godly men and women who followed him, who persevered in times of great distress. And God uses them now in our life as our great cloud of witnesses. And now they stand on the sidelines and they cheer us on. And they say, don't give up. Look back with me. Took some of these. We see uh, by faith, verse 4, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. Abel is there. Maybe he's in the, in the stands there having offered a perfect sacrifice in an attitude of faith which pleased God. There was no self-trust in his sacrifice. Noah, sitting beside him is Noah. Noah having heard the commandment of God to do what seemed ridiculous. We saw the ark uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, if anybody had told, uh, told me to build an ark... I'm just telling you, I, I, think I, would have, I think I would have laughed at him. But Noah trusted the Lord. He trusted God in all of this and said, listen, we're just going to trust God. We, he heard God's command, even though it seemed ridiculous in the eyes of his neighbors, maybe in, in the, his own eyes, he simply obeyed by faith. There's Abraham is lift, listed here, maybe with his wife Sarah standing in the, in, the, in the sidelines there. And they're encouraging you from those sidelines and because they believed the promise that was given to him. And though it was unreasonable by human understanding and physiology that they would have a child, that they would have a generation that, that they're, they're living would be as the sand of the seashores. Today we can look back and say, look what God has done. Look at the Jewish people. They are scattered everywhere throughout the world. You can't number them. And it's incredible that God's fulfilled that promise to Abraham. Then we look uh, later in, and there's Enoch. Enoch, whose simple life was known as one who walked with God. What a great testimony. Man, if, if I could just be known as John who walks with God. What a great, great testimony. An awesome calling. No doubt these are great heroes of the faith. They're great cloud of witnesses, as, as the, Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews says. And they've shown faith in the Lord. They've shown us what it means to demonstrate a life of faithfulness. These completed the race. They are in the heavenly grandstands. And now, as a great crowd, they're encouraging you and they're encouraging me to run our race and to look unto Jesus with everything we have. Texas A&M University. Any fans? All right, no Aggie fans. All right, so crickets. Sorry about that. So Texas A&M, they are uh, a team that is pretty unique in many ways. Uh, they've got a lot of tradition. Uh, but one of the things that makes them unique from any other team is uh, as the team hits the field, this place uh, in their stadium is just electric. The student body is uh, literally on fire as that team hits the field. They're on their feet. They're cheering. They're jeering. They're uh, waving white towels in the air, and they're encouraging their team as they come on the field. They don't stop the entire team in time that, that the, uh, the things are going on. The band is there playing the Aggie fight song, which happened to be our high school fight song. You know, and we think about all of these different things. That it's just an exciting moment to be part of these games. Well, one thing that's unique about them is they have a group of members who's in the stands. It's a group of, uh, of members uh, that are members of the student body. They're, they didn't quite make the cut for football, but they're there uh, at Texas A&M on an athletic scholarship. 
and they make up what's known as the 12th man kickoff return team. This started in the 80s, and it was made up entirely of students who were super athletic, and, uh, but they just, they just didn't uh, fit into the football scheme of things. But this was something about them. They wanted to leave their legacy, and they wanted to leave their mark on A&M lore. I mean, because it's a big deal. And so they would risk everything in order to make a kickoff return and make it to the end zone. And so this was a kickoff return team that was literally greatly feared by all opponents. And as that, kick, that 12th man return team would receive the ball, they would plow through mercilessly any team that got in their way. And they would sacrifice life and limb. Many times, many injuries were happened on the field because of this 12th man team. Now, this is an incredible thing to think about. But what's really encouraging is for this football team is there is these, these people in the stands that are cheering them, but then to have some of them come out of the stands, put on pads and put on a helmet and get on the field with you, what a difference it makes. You're there on the sidelines and you're taking a breather and you're watching these guys kill it on the field and you're thinking, man, we got to get out there. We can't let them show us up. Man, that's an encouraging moment. Whenever Satan brings your attention, discouragements, and distractions. I want you to come back to Hebrews 11 and see your 12th man kickoff return team. Look at verse number 30, uh, 32 with me. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched the violence of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, they waxed valiant in fight, they turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured not accepting deliverance they, that they might obtain a better resurrection, and others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword, they wandered about in sheep skins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and all these having obtained a good report through faith. Did you, did you see that? That 12th man team that's, that's played their part and now we're standing on the sidelines getting ready to go back in for the offensive uh, drive down the field and here we are. Okay, guys, they put in their part. Now it's our turn to jump in and we've got to drive it to the end zone because Jesus is coming soon. And I don't know if you catch that picture, but I feel like that's what, what the, the writer of Hebrews is laying down here for us. So let us lay aside every cloud or, or every weight and the sin which just so easily beset us and let us run. Now it's your turn. Now it's my turn. Let us continue to run this race. Christ is our perfect example in all of this. He endured the temptation. He was able to overcome it. Hebrews 4.15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the filling of our infirmities, but was in all point tempted like as we are, yet without sin. I'm thankful that Jesus Christ knows what you go through. He is, he is a compassionate, a long-suffering, a gracious Savior. He has gone through what you're going through. You say, you don't understand, Pastor. The temptations are too strong. I can't overcome it. Listen, He was tempted even greater than you were. And he was yet without sin. The one that we look to, uh, look to knows the trials. 
He knows the turmoil. He knows the heartache that you're facing. And the good news is that he overcame and you can too. And I remind you what 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says. It says, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. I want you all to read that with me. It's on the screen or you can look it in your Bible with me. Just read it out loud with me. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Do you believe that, church? Amen. Man, if God calls us to jump through a ring of fire, man, we, all, we better obey. Amen. I, I tell you, no matter what it is that God's leading us, let us be willing to trust Him. Faithful is He that calleth you. Faithful is the one who will also perform the work. He's not going to leave you abandoned in your times of temptation. Instead, He says, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you the ability to go through it. And you're going to have uh, strength and success to be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation taken you, but such, as, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. I urge you today, look to Jesus. He's the author and finisher of our faith. You say, well, pastor, you understand it's just not the same in 2021. Well, we stare with the same God. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Ephesians 3, 20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. 1 John 4, 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Don't give me that. I got the word of God, and it gives us confidence today. So, he gives us strength in our situation. Look where he calls us to. So that's what we have behind us. And that's what we have uh, as our backing, as our encouragement here today. But let's look going forward today. For, for right now, in your tomorrow, this is what he says. So let us lay aside every weight. And the sin was just so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So as we come to this moment of our race, there's a first off a call to prepare. There is a, a time where God wants us to prepare for this race. You ever been to a race? Uh, you, you ever been early? I used to go to races and athletic events a lot when I was a youth minister here at the church. And we'd go support our students on the sidelines and we'd watch them. The baseball players, they're out there getting ready. Uh, I think a little Luke, he's, Luke's playing ball right now, isn't he? And Luke's out there and he gets out there and he throws the ball and they warm it up with them pitches. And, and what position is he playing? Third base. And so he's got to practice getting that long throw to first base, all right? And boy, I think about some of these kids and they're out there and they're warming up with that arm, getting it ready. And then the coach says, gets them out there to run and they start running. They get preparing. There's that preparation part. Well, in a foot race, oftentimes runners will put on a warm-up suit, especially in uh, cold weather atmospheres. They have to get their muscles warmed up. And so they put on these running out, uh, or, or jogging uh, outfits. I don't know what to call them. Suits. There you go. We'll call it that. And as they put that on... Uh, it helps their muscles to warm up a little quick, quicker and, and allows them to be able to do some short sprints back and forth and some light jogs around the track. And they get over there on the sidelines and they start stretching out their muscles. And I think I can touch my toes, but not right now. And, and they start doing these things and, and they start getting things ready. But when the call comes for their race, they take those things off and they say, all right, I'm getting ready to run my race. We're going to go forward and I'm going to run this race with no weights on me. They don't go out there with, with things in their hands. Well, I've got to take my water bottle and, and I, I've got to have my, my music uh, in my pocket and my earbuds in and I've got to take uh, my car keys in case I get locked out of the truck. They don't worry about those things. Instead, what they do is they shed those weights. They leave them on the bench and they said, listen, I've got to run a race that's ahead of me. I've got to prepare for this so that I can run this. 
The Greek word for weight can mean body bulk or excess weight. For spiritual athletes, that can be like the case of having too many irons in the fire. Did I get, the, did I get it straight? Am I good? All right, good. Don't want to run my race with my collar messed up. Sometimes it can be too many interests, too many good things in their life that suck out the vital energy for what really matters. John chapter 15, we learn that God is our husbandman, our vine dresser. And he has a desire to prune things from our life so that we might be able to bear more fruit. John 15 verses 1 and 2 says, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Aren't you thankful for that? Think, think about his character. He's perfect. He knows what we need. He is the one that comes along in our life and he begins to prune things and to trim things and to prepare your life for what's ahead. And he says in verse 2, And every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. I, I've never raised grapes, but I've read a little bit about it in, in just for interest's sake. And I know that grapevines are really notorious for growing all kinds of beautiful foliage. And you'll walk out there, and boy, it's beautiful. If you don't prune it, uh, the grapevines, they'll be all, even, if, even if you keep them up off the ground, uh, you'll see this, all this beautiful foliage along the side of the fence. And you'll think, man, this is going to be a wonderful year, lots of grapes. But the plant is producing those leaves, and it's not putting as much energy in producing the fruit. And so a smart vine dresser, a smart husbandman is going to come along and he's going to prune off everything that doesn't have fruit on it. And so as he comes along and he trims these things off, the plant doesn't look as pretty maybe as it used to, but what happens is the plant produce, puts all of its energy into what remains. And so all of these non-essentials fall away so that all that the plant focuses on is the fruit that really matters. In the same way, God calls us to prepare our lives, to lay aside every weight and every sin which just so easily beset us. Why? He wants to purge those things out of our life and cut those things off and prepare us so that we might be able to bear fruit that matters. This means we must make a decision. What will we love the most? What will we give our heart to? I believe that's why Jesus Christ teaches that the greatest commandment above everything else is to love God. Not, not just love Him like I love my dog. How many of you love your doggy? They're pretty sweet. If you've got a soft one and it's fluffy and it curls in your lap, you love it. Maybe, maybe you're uh, 16, or in my son's case, you're 14, and you have a love for trucks. He's not saying, love me like you love your truck. He's not even saying, love me like you love your wife. He's not even saying, love me like you love your children, but to love him with all your being. Matthew twenty two thirty seven: Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. If we're going to prepare to run this race, that means giving him our entire focus. What verse 2 says is looking unto Jesus. And so it calls us to shed the weight, get rid of those encumbrances, to get rid of the suits, even, the protect, even those things that may be protected, uh, protect the runner, and, and just be willing to run the race that God has set before us. As we, uh, as we do so, let me just encourage you, because too many Christians today are playing in sin. 
And Christians think it's innocent. It's, well, it's not hurting anyone. No one knows about it. And they come to, we come to church, we play the game, but just as Christ condemned the Pharisees for this hypocritical attitude, so he condemns our false pretenses as well. In Matthew 22, or 23, 27, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites, for ye are like whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. What would happen is these folks, as they, uh, they buried their loved one, they would make these elaborate tombs and then they would paint the outside uh, so that from the outside it looks beautiful, but it's still a tomb. It's still full of dead bones. And you may plant uh, beautiful plants on the outside and it may look green and, and wonderful and it may be white on the outside, but inside it's full of filth and decay and rot and dead men's bones. And he says, listen, if we just clean up the outside, but we don't let God change the inside, then we're just like that. And so he says, if you're going to run your race, it's time, to, it's time to shed the weight. It's time to lay aside those sins which doth so easily beset us. So God, God warns us, if we can't run this race, we cannot succeed if we don't get our eyes off of these things and onto Christ. He says in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, what does it say? The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. God is calling us. He's saying, listen, before revival ever begins, he says, shed that weight of sin. Get rid of those things. Lay them at the altar. This sin that he deals with is, is a besetting sin, something that you stumble over. It can be greed, envy, jealousy, anger, backbiting, gossip, lust, slander. The list can go on and on, but Christ calls us to put off these works of darkness and choose to walk in the light. Ephesians 2, 4.22 says that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man. There's a putting off process here. When I became a sinner or a Christian, he says it's time for you to put off so that you can put on. And because he says the old man is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And he says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And verse number 24 says, you put off so that you can put on, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And so God's calling us to put off. Now look at verse 4 in our in our text with me. Hebrews 12, 4. He says, you have, not resisted, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Now, if, if I just want to give you a little word illustration, if I can, in this. As we're thinking about the games and athletics, the boxers during that time were accustomed to arming themselves before the fight. And so first off, they would take leather thongs and they would round, wound, you know what I'm trying to say, wrap. Wrap the hand the first time uh, with a tight binding of leather all around the hand and the first part of the wrist so that there was a nice tight fist. And then the second round wound, wrap, I can't say it tonight, I don't know what it is. So the second one time they would go just a little further up the arm to the elbow and then they would do one more wrap all the way around the hand and they would go all the way up to the shoulder. And then once they got that, their fists would be incredibly hard and firm and compact. I meant to bring my boxing gloves uh, that uh, Brother Tim gave me years ago. My sons go out there to our punching bag and they punch with the punching bag with them. But they're soft and if I hit you with my boxing gloves, you'll laugh. But these guys, they had really tough fists. And then they would take, and they would sometimes interlace in that leather, they would put steel to make the, the almost like a brass knuckle effect. 
And so literally, as these boxers get in the ring, they have this, these heavy, uh, wrapped fists that are super hard. Uh, even if they didn't have the steel, they have the, all the leather, leather that gives them an extra hard fist, and it's also extra heavy from extra weight. And so when they plow into their opponent, it literally causes them to shed blood. And as he talks about this in verse 4, he says, Ye have not yet resisted unto blood. You've not gone to that determination because as these two fighters get into the ring, they're resisting one another, the blood is flowing, and they're doing everything they can to stay determined, encouraged, and purpose, and they don't want to yield. And he says, in the same way, God is calling us as a church. Listen, each of us individually must be willing to resist sin and say, listen, it's not going to be part of my life. I'm not going to let it in my life. I'm going to resist the devil with everything that's in me because he says, draw nigh unto God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Listen, church, that's an exciting thing when God calls us and reminds us that if we draw nigh to him, he'll, he'll draw nigh unto us. We, we resist the devil, he's going to flee from you. We, we have not yet resisted to that place. And too many people today are, are just dabbling in sin. And so God calls us now. Will you come out of that sin? Would you lay aside those weights, remove that sin that besets you, and run with patience. This thought running with patience, I don't know about you, but I don't like patience. Mostly I appreciate patience, but I, I don't like the getting of patience. One man, I was reading a, 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 an illustration this week, and he said uh, that uh, he went to his pastor and he said, Pastor, would you pray for me that God would give me patience? He said, sure, I'll pray with you for that. A couple weeks later, he came to his, his pastor and said, Pastor, you don't understand all the problems I've got going on. My business is, uh, we're, I, we're just slammed at business, and I had three people quit. And uh, he said, my wife's been in the hospital, and, and now I've got all of these things going on. And, and he says, what are you praying for? He said, well, you said pray for patience. So I was praying God would give you trials because faith, uh, he says, trials produce patience. Obviously, he wasn't real ecstatic with that, was he? But God's calling us in our preparation for the race, and He alone has given a power and authority and ability to overcome. And He says, run with patience, because He knows it won't be easy. You ever, I don't know about you, I'm not much of a runner. I'm not like some people like Brother Greg who run marathons, but I've run a little bit. And um, probably the longest run I've ever done is about 10 miles. And I remember about mile eight, my body was resisting with everything in me. And I'm, I'm coming along with mile eight, and I'm like, oh, oh, I don't think I can make it. And I was trying really hard. It was just a personal thing. It wasn't any, no one cared except for me. And so I thought, I've got no skin in the game, if you will, and I'm just, I'm just at this place. I just want to run to make it to 10 just for me. And so I'm going along, and my body is resisting. My, my calves are hurting. My feet are hurting. My head is hurting. I'm, I'm running out of water, and I'm just, I wore plumb out. And I'm coming to the end of this race, and, and my body is saying, stop and rest. And I'm fighting my body saying, stay with it. Don't give up. Don't quit. And it's in that same vein, God is saying, listen, you're going to have to run with patience because in the race, it will be hard at times. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be where you have times of jubilation. It's not always going to be where there's times where we rejoice together. It's not always going to be where, where everybody loves you. Amen, Pastor Tolbert? In 35 and a half years of pastoring our church, were there, any, were there times where people didn't like you? <laughs> I'm so thankful and we are so blessed that you ran the race with patience. 
the great cloud of witnesses rise up around you and say, don't give up. Keep running your race. Colossians 1.29 says, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. There's those words labor and striving, just continually not giving up, just like the runner that strives to finish. We labor under the pressures of the race, and God calls you in this to persevere because there will be days, months, years that seem that to call upon every ounce of your strength. But when we minister in the power of his might, we find strength to continue because Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. We can trust in him through it. We serve a mighty God, amen? I shared with you this verse a while ago, and unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Ephesians 3.20, don't forget that our God is able. And it's the same power that works in you today. As a believer, his Holy Spirit indwells you. He empowers you. He strengthens you. He encourages you. He sustains you. And he calls you now to continue. And so when you feel defeated, remember, you're of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But let me remind you, he supplies for our future. Aren't you thankful God doesn't just say, okay, run, there's an end in the race. Hallelujah, there's an end in this race. Okay, y'all aren't excited about the end, but I'm ready for the end. I think about, man, I'm, I keep listening any day. My, my, I got one ear tuned up while I'm working in the fields. You know, I'm just ready to hear the trumpet of God blow. I'm ready for that upper taker, amen? I love Jim McCarty. He always say, I'm looking for that upper taker, preacher, not the undertaker. And I just remember thinking about him, and I just want to encourage you today that there is a plan for in God, with God, for your life. In a race, a runner stays focused on the finish line. He turns all of his attention toward winning the race. The crowd is blocked out. He's not worried about the guy beside him, behind him, around him. Maybe if there's a guy in front of him, he's working toward just passing the next guy and passing the next guy. But ultimately, he's worried about the finish line. In the same way, God calls us to see the finish line. He's completed the work of redemption on the cross. He cried out, it is finished. I love this, this word. In the 1980s, archaeologists discovered an ancient papyrus that was dating back to 170 B.C. And the document is a receipt for payments that were made over the course of several months and because the papyrus was only a fragment, it's not clear who uh, this for whom those payments were made, uh, but it's only clear, the main thing that's clear is was written at the top is a Greek word, and I can't, I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Uh, can you say it, brother? I know you, it's your favorite word. Thank you, teltelestai. I know I was going to mess it up. This word, teltelestai, that's it. And what it means is paid in full. He owes nothing else, she owes nothing else, and it's the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he, when he cried out, it is finished. My debts are paid. The finish line is ahead. I have nothing to fear. So now God calls you and I to run this Christian race. Every morning I listen to the news. My kids will tell you. I turn it on. And I, I listen to it on my phone, and, uh, and I put it in the bathroom. I turn it up all the way so I can take a shower and listen to the news and hear what's going on in the world. Shaving, I listen to the news, all those things. And they can hear it, I'm sure, throughout the house. The kids are like, yep. And it's easy, if you listen to the news, to get discouraged. America seems to be dying. Our world is in chaos, spiritually, 
And we seem to be taken from one crisis to another. We see calamities, we see murders, we see sin, all running rampant in our generation. Uh, and, and sometimes it's easy to despair. I'm going to share with you about Eugene. Life couldn't have been better for Eugene. He was married to his sweetheart in 1917. They had two children. He was a publisher of a hymn book, and it was in high demand. He sold over 15,000 copies across the country, which during that time was a pretty big deal. And he felt his calling was to publish hymns and teach uh, new singers how to uh, sight read. So he traveled the South. He held singing schools and singing conventions, and God was using him greatly. But at the age of 53 in 1939, his world changed drastically. Eugene suffered a paralyzing stroke that left him unable to walk or even speak for the most part of, of his bedridden life. Many felt the stroke ended his ministry. And yet it was during these dark days that Eugene would write one of the best-known hymns of all time, Victory in Jesus. We sang it this evening. And while looking back over his life, he began to think about uh, the night he was born again. He thought about the rich life that had, uh, that had been since that night, how rich his life had been. He picked up a, a pen and just began to, uh, to write what would become his best-known song. And he wrote these words. I heard an old, old story. How a Savior came from glory. How He gave His life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. Realizing that the love of God had sustained him and brought him to where he was that day, he, quoted, he is quoted as saying he felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit to add another verse. Here another verse. I heard about His healing, of His saving power revealing how he made the lame to walk again, and he caused the blind to see. So when he completed that song, he looked back over it and seen it was a story of God's redeeming power in his life from start to finish. But he wanted the song to be joyous, and I'm thankful it's joyous. It's Sister Shirley's favorite song. I thought it was Shirley's. I got oh, Well, there you go. I always thought farther along was yours or something like that. Well, that's what I get for thinking. Pastor's favorite song. And so as he looked back over it, he wanted it to be joyous. And so even though it was written during the darkest period of his life, he wanted to just give glory to God. Eugene Bartlett, from his bedside, from the hardest, lowest point in his life, penned for us a hymn that we love to sing today, Victory in Jesus. How could he do it? He kept his eyes on Christ. He kept looking unto Jesus because looking unto Jesus gives us, gives us clarity. It helps us to be able to know what's going on in our times. It gives us clarity in our trials. It gives us clarity for our purpose. It brings clarity in our future. And today, may we be willing to cast off the works of darkness, to be able to see the great cloud of witnesses that are behind us, to see how God has sustained and provided in times past so that going forward, we may be willing to say, God, we want right now to see the power of God come down on this place. God doing a, a mighty, amazing work here. Not that we could just have a, a series of, of, of services this week, but God would truly revive our hearts throughout this week and that we might draw close to Him and He might change our lives and we might be transformed by Him. And then we might be able to see and keep our eyes on that future coming. Oh, what a day that will be when our Jesus we shall see. Would you bow your head with me?